Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Into the meat and the heat of the summer, and the big releases just keep coming. No different this week, and we'll have some smaller films to talk about, too. And, of course, the new release is out on home video. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com, and the Screening Room Podcast is sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. With their 70-foot-wide ultra screen featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners, George. I felt the difference this week. I did not see a movie sitting in the Dream Lounger recliners <laughs> like we did last week. And, yes, they earned their name, the Big Comfies. i got to get that. i got to start that hashtag. <laughs> hashtag Big Comfy. But, uh, yeah, welcome. Got a big one this week, and uh, it probably needs no introduction. Because it's a sequel to a much-loved Pixar film. There's a lot of those out there. Yes. And uh, after years and years, we have got Incredibles 2. So, are we going to talk about it? What? The elephant in the room. What elephant? Mom's new job. Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. You know it's crazy, right? To help my family, I gotta leave it. To fix the law, I gotta break it. You've got to, so our kids can have that choice. Suit up. It might get weird. I'll be there ASAP. Where you going ASAP? You better be back ASAP. 14 years. That is a a long time to wait between parts one and two. It is. And uh, it's funny because... For this movie, no time at all has no, passed. It picks not right up. Exactly. It picks up the very minute the other one leaves off, <laughs> uh, which is kind of fun. It is fun. It is fun. And um, if you have forgotten it all, because I, I think I have forgotten a little bit. Because 14 years is a long time. One. That's right. That's right. But the Parr family, the, the superheroes, the incredible family, they have been sidelined along with all the other superheroes because of the law against superheroes. Yes. And that plagued them in the previous installment as well. And so in the new, in the sequel, there is a wealthy billionaire who has a plan to make supering legal again. That's right. So Winston Deaver is his name. Voiced by Bob Odenkirk. Does a nice job. Right. And his sister is the tech-savvy Evelyn, and she's voiced by Catherine Keener. Catherine Keener, Keener always we welcome. Always so yeah, they've got a plan to get the, the supers back in action, and it comes in handy because the city is under attack from a new type of villain that goes by the name of the Screen Slayer. Yeah. And uh, hit, hits the, the city with cyber attacks, so mm-hmm. it seems there's a reason to get the uh, superheroes out of hibernation, but it, but it really starts with a media makeover with just... Helen Parr, voiced by Holly Hunter. Yep, Elastigirl. Elastigirl. So she gets the media makeover while Mr. Incredible, Bob Parr, stays home with the kids. The baby Jack-Jack, and then the younger Dash, and then you've got the teenaged Violet, who's mm-hmm. now is going through her first heartbreak. Right. So all the kids need something, and Dad is left at home, and they really play that up, which I thought was kind of one of the the stale parts of the movie. I mean, there's nothing wrong with re-examining those types of, of gender issues, but it just... It seems at least 14 years old. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. And actually, I think that the gender role concerns, actually, that was one of the reasons I didn't love the original as much as I think everybody else did, because 14 years ago, it felt stale to me. 
Um, which is not to say, I mean, the, all of the talent is there. It looks great, of course, because it's Pixar. Right. Uh, Brad Bird is directing again, and he's also um, in it as Edna. Edna. The little yes. Linda Hunt looking yes. uh, fashion designer. Right. Who's great. And then what's funny, what I liked, you know, is that by the end of the first film, we knew that baby Jack-Jack had powers, but of course nobody else in the family does. So that's a big part of the new one is, is adjusting to the baby's powers, which yeah. is fun. And he has several of them. And they, 17 at least, I think they said at the end. <laughs> and they come up at some very interesting moments. So you're right, that is fun. But the real interesting part of this movie that I thought gave it potential that is really unexplored is when they come up with the theme that Screenslayer, the villain, his ultimate, his or her, ultimate goal is to use technology against the population by destroying their trust in it, which... Check the headlines. That is pretty relevant yeah, right now. It is. And it's and it's a funny thing. You know, not that children are going to be caught up in this very much, but there is a very weird, uh, like, time-space continuum thing happening in this because the original film had that fun, sort of futuristic retro look. All the cars look like they're from the 50s, but, of course, you know, the, the technology is not. And, of course, it leaps forward by one day where we have leapt forward by 14 years. So yeah. you've got this very tech-savvy villain, but everybody is still using uh, uh, dial-up phones <laughs> at their, in the movie. I mean, it was, and again, children are not going to be bothered by this and there's right. certainly a suspension of disbelief that's necessary to like to enjoy any animated film but I, I did get I got caught up on that as well like I couldn't figure out what their timestamp was well more than that what it said to me once once they revealed that the plan yeah. of, of the villain I thought oh wow are they gonna go say into Zootopia yes. type of uh, waters where you know Zootopia was so Brave. In, in the moment oh, and brave it about was. tackling issues yeah. while still presenting a great animated fun film. Right. And this one, once they bring that subject up, has a lot of fertile ground where they can explore it, but they, no, al- they, fall they almost back immediately on gender set, roles set again. it aside yeah. and go for the you know the safe ground, the 1990s sitcom. Comfortable family issues. Yes. Which is you know, which is all right, I guess. It just kind of made me disappointed that wow, there you go. Here, here's here's where you could have gone, and and went by bringing it up, I think you're going there, and then you kind of shrink from it, which which to me was was disappointing. But there still is a lot to like here, and you mentioned some, but the animation looks great, of course, yes. Some of the uh, the action scenes, they zip, they're fun. Mm-hmm. You've got Frozone, mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. I know back. you love him. I think he's got maybe a little bit bigger part this time, and yeah, and he's always funny, and so. It seems like we always say this every time we talk about a Pixar movie because it's, it's hard. It, it's hard because against yes, their are. own greatness. But at the same time, when you look at it, the world of Pixar sequels, except for the the Toy Story universe, right? As we have which mentioned should be in its own universe several times yes. is darn near flawless. Yes. But then you look at the other sequels, and I, I guess it's only fair because sequels in general don't measure up. Right, but right. the world of Pixar sequels is a little, you know, weak mm-hmm. uh, in their in their overall catalog. So this one, I think, still leaps to the top. Right. So you're saying that comparatively, it's better than Finding Dory, and it's better than Monsters University, Lord or knows, and it's cars better than any of to, the Cars sequels. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. But. But it is sometimes it feels unfair to judge Pixar against itself because their highs are so high. Yes, astronomically high. high. Oh, you know, we should mention, because I think people will be curious, is yes, it does start with a lovely, interesting, certainly Oscar-bound short. Exactly. And this is one that you can see it before the, the 
feature movie starts, and then when the Oscars come along, you'll say, well, at least I've seen one That's right. of the animated shorts. <laughs> <laughs> but it is good. It's, it's it is. about little dumplings. Yes, um, I loved yeah. it. I loved it, it. It's interesting. So, yeah, I think this one, in the end, I liked it maybe a little more than you did. I didn't like it very much, to be honest with really? you. Really? Not no. much at all? No, okay. I didn't like it very much. I thought you liked it a little bit more yeah, than that. Yeah, um, I liked things about it, but on the whole, I don't want to see it again now. Okay, well, I, st- I, I was disappointed by where it didn't go, but then putting putting that aside, what it did you know, it ultimately come out, come out with, I thought was perfectly enjoyable. Very, very easy for a, a nice summer family yeah. movie to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I didn't like the original as much as most people did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a kind of derivative second act of that same, it, it's yeah. obviously it's not going to appeal to me, but we did bring a very discerning four-year-old with us, <laughs> Sammy. Oh yes. my God, this kid is such a, such a, such a riot. And he loved it. And he had been up since five 30 that morning at camp. Yeah. So he should have been very tired, but he was he wrapped attention the whole time. He and loved it. There was at least one or two gags. One, especially I'm not going to spoil that the uh, adults in the audience really yeah. appreciate yeah. Yeah, yeah. And really, really laughed at. So I think it'll be a big winner this week. So you've got one recommendation from me and kind of a lukewarm yeah. from you for The Incredibles 2. And as we do a lot of weeks when we have a big family movie coming out, we've got a big movie for the non-families. Right. It's an R-rated comedy. This is uh, featuring a small group of former classmates organizing an elaborate annual game of tag that requires some to travel all over the country. It's called Tag. Please tell me what's going on here. Our group of friends has been playing the same game of tag for 30 years. What? For the entire month of May, every year we play tag. You're you're, you're, you got me. me. You never know when someone's gonna pop up. Congratulations, buddy. You're in. Doing great, Anna. Our buddy Jerry is the best that ever played. And now he wants to retire. Never been tagged. Just saying. So who's it? Can't touch this. This is the year we get Jerry. Can't touch this. Seems like the game has really kept you guys connected. This game has given us a reason to be in each other's lives. I think your dad would have really wanted you to be. Yeah. (laughs) Here's one we were really looking forward to. Like, it's got a great cast and it's got a funny, ludicrous, but strangely enough, true. Yeah. Uh, story. The premise is completely absurd, uh, but it grabs your attention, and then you realize it's mostly true. It's so that, crazy. That's actually a good, solid building block to start a movie on, you know. Uh, and they do, a, like you mentioned the cast, uh, they do a good job of making it consistently funny and enjoyable. And it was back in 2013 that it was a, a front-page story on uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, hit the Which world. is weird enough. I know. That's a weird idea. You expect it to be in People or somewhere. But uh, hip the world to this group of 10 classmates who'd been playing the same game of tag for over 20 years. Right. They played it once a year for the entire month. For, in, in reality, they played it in February. Uh, the uh, movie moves it to May. And the movie shrinks the cast a little bit, you know, to make it more manageable. So you've got a group of four main ones uh, played by John Hamm and Ed Helms and Jake Johnson and Hannibal Burris. And they have now hashed what they think is finally the foolproof plan to track down and finally tag the fifth member of the group, played by Jeremy Renner, who has never, ever been it. Nice. He's just too good. Uh, But they think they have the plan now because uh, he's going to get married. And, of course, he doesn't invite his old classmates to the the wedding because he knows they're going to come anyway and try to tag it. (laughs) So that's what sets the whole thing in motion. And it's got a lot of zip. You know, it's a a director, Jeff Tomzik, 
uh, shows. He he has mainly has TV in his in his uh, resume, but he shows a lot of good instincts for keeping things moving. He's got nice snappy transitions between scenes, and there's physical comedy. There's a lot of physical comedy because I don't know if you've heard, but Jeremy Renner actually broke both arms on the set of this movie. Wow. He broke an arm on uh, one arm, and then the other arm, he broke his wrist. Wow. Yeah. So there's some serious physical comedy going on here, and a lot of it is very good and very effective, and the script is funny and hip. You know, it's not a laugh riot from start to finish, Mm -hmm. but I thought it really delivered enough laughs, and a lot of it you can turn back to the cast. You mentioned the cast. It's a very talented cast. So it's not just those core five. You also have Isla Fisher, who is always funny, especially in physical comedy. Yeah, Isla Fisher plays Ed Helms' wife, and... Wives and girlfriends, really nobody outside the core group is allowed to play, but she's allowed to help, and she's <laughs> extremely competitive <laughs> and a lot of fun. And then you've got one of the nice devices about this. You've got the uh, Wall Street Journal reporter here played by Annabelle Wallace, and she goes along on the trip to this wedding because she knows this is a crazy story, and that's a nice organic device to have our questions answered. Right, right, because they're they're explaining it to her because she's reporting on it, and therefore they are explaining it to us yeah. in a way that doesn't feel heavy-handed exactly. and dumb. Exactly, yeah. so that keeps things moving along. So, yeah, it's just, and it is, it earns its R, it gets raunchy in, in some spots, which, as you know me, I have no problem with that. <laughs> uh, so if you're fine with that, I think you're going to find a decent amount of laughs and an enjoyable cast, especially uh, John Hamm, Jake Johnson, and uh, Jeremy Renner and Isla Fisher, really, too, they're able to carve out actual characters with, with, right. some, with some edges. Now, Ed Helms and Hannibal Burris are basically the, Ed Helms and Hannibal Burris. Right. But uh, you know what? Those two people are funny. And they're funny. And Hannibal Burris has some of the most funny lines. Yeah, it, his delivery makes almost everything hysterical. Right. It sounds like something in his stand-up, yeah. but it's funny. He had, he had one in particular that as soon as he started saying it, I knew what he was going to say when it started, and I started laughing a good five seconds before he was done saying it, <laughs> just because, oh, is he going to say this? And it was just perfect. So yeah, the two of them, Ed Helms and Hannibal Burris, are kind of leaning on their same personas, sure. but they're funny, yeah. so it kind of adds to the whole bit of shenanigans. And there's, there's some assorted cast of oddball weirdos that pop up, too, that are always fun. <laughs> you know, that yeah. are just weird. Different characters, like, you know, what's up with that person? And it also manages to take a nice look at friendship and adulthood and staying together through the years without getting sappy, which is nice. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, it's always very personal what is funny to Right, people. it's like horror. If yeah. it's not scary to you, then the movie is exactly. wasted. Comedy is much the same way. Yeah, but I, I laughed a good deal, and uh, I think that the cast really sells it, especially when it does have some weak spots. You just enjoy watching these people mm-hmm. uh, do what they do. And so I, I would recommend it. I enjoyed uh, Tag. Next up, not a sequel, but a reboot, a reimagining of a classic from the 1970s with his sights set on retiring a successful young drug dealer sets up one last big deal, Superfly. Money comes easy. He's keeping it, that's all. Power never stopped a bullet. No car can outrun fate. But if you can play the game by your own rules and win, Superfly. These are some big pimp shoes to fell. Big pimp shoes. And yes. Right, right away, I f- found it interesting that right away they set their own identity because 
The title is one word. Yeah. In, the, in 72, it was two words. It was two words. But they're doing their own thing. Yep, although the F is still capitalized. <laughs> that should have been the tagline. That should have been the There's tagline. There's still a big F. <laughs> and the other thing, just like Ron O'Neill back in the day, he set a nice uh, hair standard. Yes. The new Superfly also quite a pompadour. Yes, he does have quite a do, and it, and it's and it's uh, I, I think that the reboot is more self-reflective in that way. I mean, the rest of the cast mentions his hair on a number of occasions, and sometimes <laughs> in in a very funny way. Um, I think that they do a director X is uh, the director, and he they do a lot of very interesting things in updating the story, and they're. I was surprised in seeing the trailer how very true they are to actually the original film, the 72 film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, he's he's um, smarter and less driven uh, by excess than other drug dealers, uh, um, Youngblood Priest. And so, but Love they, that name, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it's awesome. So he just wants to get out. You know, he's he's done enough and he wants to get out before, while he's still good looking. And has a life to lead. Yeah, and that's, you know what, that is a, a well-worn cliche. Oh, it is. One last deal. Oh, it totally is, But that yes. doesn't mean it can't be reimagined in an effective way. Right, and I think that, I mean, you know, I think that the reason that uh, that Gordon Park Jr.'s original stirred uh, the population the way it did is is not because the story was new, because it is not a new story. It's because the way the story was told was very new at the time. Of course, it is one of the classics of black exploitation. Right. And um, and more than anything, it has style to spare. It but does. more than anything else, what you remember, what I remember about the original is Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack, which Every, was insanely great beginning to end. That's one of the first things you'll, you'll think about when you think about that movie. Oh, oh yeah, my absolutely. Lord, that soundtrack. Oh, yeah. It's, in many ways, it has outlived the movie oh no question i mean that that there's still there's still a, a lot of a good cult around oh, the movie superfly but that soundtrack is an all-timer yeah. and it's nice that they dip their toe in that water they do i mean it's it's an entirely new sound that you know they have a new sound for the film to update it but they do bring in some curtis mayfield a couple of of uh, really opportune moments because it's right about the time you're going I could listen to some Curtis Mayfield right now. And, and then, you, blam, there it is. And you can probably guess the songs that they use. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, it, you know, it's interesting. They, you know, they have mainly the same characters, certainly the same character names. You know, they update a couple of different things. They do bring in a new, uh, there's a, a rival gang that you didn't see in the first one. Mm-hmm. And also, I thought it was interesting that, in, of course, in the original, the man who's keeping him down is, of course, uh, the um, police detectives in New York who are, you know, the higher up you get in the in the power chain the more corrupt they are in this film kind of smartly really the obviously uh, the police are still problematic but the the top of the food chain because it is a drug cartel is a mexican cartel and the, the main guy is played by isai morales who who does a really nice job it's a very interesting yeah. take you know and so and and there are a couple of times there's one chase scene in particular that, you know, you just have to be happy with the way it ends when uh, a car explodes into a big Confederate landmark, you know, and, and there are just there are times like that where they do director X does a nice job of clarifying that sadly enough, even though the racial tensions that were the, the root of the 1972 original are 45 years old, they're not gone. Mm-hmm. They are very much still here. Yeah. But I feel like the main problem with this film 
is that uh, Trevor Jackson, who plays young blood priest, he's got nothing going on inside, right? Yeah. Ron O'Neill, first of all, was quite a bit older, I'm going to say. And he, but he just, I'm not saying he's a great actor, but he sold the idea that he had some internal conflict. Yep. You know, that he wasn't a 100% good man. and But he just had a good man in him somewhere, but he had so many other things and so much damage. This is just a kid and he's posing. He yeah. looks pretty. And the, he looks good in these suits. And, and the other problem is when you have a stronger supporting cast around him, you mentioned Isai Morales. We didn't mention one of our favorite young actors, Jason Mitchell. Yeah, Jason Mitchell. Who's always good. And when you when you have a number of other stronger performances around, it just makes the a weak lead performance seem weaker. Yes, it does. And and I think that they try to overcome that with one of the laziest of all writing cliches, voiceover narration, yeah. where he voices over his own story for no reason because we're watching his story. So there are some pretty big flaws. But to be honest with you, it's a better film than I thought it was going to be. It had more insight. It had more style. And it was truer to the source material than I thought. So I, I mean, I did enjoy it. It is not great by any stretch, but it's, it's it's a better film than I thought. And that's the new Superfly. Is there some kind of rule that I have to pronounce it Superfly when I say that? I guess so, because I keep doing it. Moving on, uh, next up this week, a Brooklyn couple has always known that their four-year-old son is more interested in fairy tale princesses than toy cars. But when his preschool director points out that his gender nonconformity play may be more than just a phase, the couple is forced to rethink their roles as parents and spouses. It's a kid like Jake. You really don't think it's weird? I mean, he does like to play dress-up. That's not news. Yeah, he likes fairy tales, but maybe that's not the most critical thing worth mentioning. He asked why boys can't wear skirts. I don't want to send him off to kindergarten labeled. He's only four. What if he starts thinking there's something wrong with him? You two have some choices to make here. You're the one buying him every princess DVD you can get your hands on, and then freaking out when people start to notice. Is it any wonder he's confused? We try so hard to protect them, but it's never going to be easy to really see people, especially the ones we love. It's this is one that we did not get the opportunity to see. We had a lot of movies to watch this week, and Rachel Willis, writer for the Mad Wolf Pack, she covered it for us, and she thought that it was strong, that it had a good, honest interesting, necessary story and to some, tell. And some good performances. Yeah, but that it wasn't always as intimate as it should have been. And maybe with more, needed more point of view from Jake himself. From the child, instead yeah. Instead of some of the ancillary characters. But you can check out her full written review, that's from Rachel Willis, on our main website at madwolf.com. Next one to talk about is a horror movie, so you know we love that. This is a story about students fighting to survive a weekend in the woods. Haven't heard that before. This one's called Feral. It looks like he got attacked by a wild animal. What if it comes back? Somebody needs to hike back and get some help. Nearest human being, 50 miles away. Sun setting. They will be back. They all will. You don't understand what's coming. You have no idea. I'm scared. You do. They're here. Well, you've you've nailed the <laughs> biggest problem with this movie, which is that you have, I know I have, seen this movie about 35 times. But you know what? While we're laughing at that, let's let's say that doesn't mean it has to, you know, go off the rails. You can take a well-worn idea. It's what you do with it. Yeah, the problem here is that it's very much color by numbers. You know, it, you know, it, it's just a checklist of uh, three attractive couples. Check. They can't really find the lake they're looking for because they've wandered off the path. Check. They're going to go ahead and camp here for the night. Check. I have to pee. 
there's a sound in the woods. I mean, it's just so derivative. And I think that it's because they felt as if they had one hook that freshened everything up. Because of the three couples, one couple is a lesbian couple. And Alice, of that couple, played by Scout Compton Taylor, mm-hmm. who uh, was in the uh, the reboots of the Halloween movies, for right. example. She's been in a lot of films. She is the lead, and so it's not really your final girl. I mean, she's the hero of the film. And the um, cast as a whole is very strong. Nobody does incredibly stupid things. I think the relationships among the cast members are very believable. And I think that it's a nice, there are a couple of nice changes. For example, that the male characters are just as likely to die in the woods as the female characters. And we don't just pick off the the ladies first. Right. right. Um, uh, the problem is that that's not enough. Yeah, I mean, g- give it points for not only having that lesbian couple, but not treating it as, oh, looky here. No, Look it's what true. we have. Nope, they really don't. It just happens to be the two of the characters that are, you know, so that's- struggling. Yeah, it, I, I appreciated that. And it's not also, it's not a badly written film. Uh, and the performances are good. It's simply that you 100% know everything that is going to happen before it happens. Mm-hmm. Every single thing, right down to the last shot in the film. And that's... Boring is what it is. <laughs> and that's a disappointment because we love the horror movies, and that's feral. And one more new one in theaters. This is another one in limited release. In the early 20th century, an aging actress and her lover visit the estate of her elderly brother. This is the latest treatment of Chekhov's The Seagull. Isn't she adorable? <laughs> Even the thought of her makes my heart race. Boris Trigorin, he's so famous. He looked young. He is young and accomplished, don't remind me. Have you seen Nina? She went to the lake with Boris. Masha, why is my son so depressed? He's heartsick. What's that supposed to mean? Constantine! I love Constantine. <laughs> Remember all the laughter and the noise? And the love affairs. So many love affairs. I am going to tear this love out of my heart. How are you going to do that? I'll get married. Boy, talk about a great cast. This is a great cast. And it's a it's a young, well, I, sh- I don't know how young they are, but the director, Michael Mayer, and the, uh, the screenwriter who adapts Anton Chekhov's play, Stephen Karam, neither one of them have a whole lot of experience, right. um, at least in features. So... You know, this is a big undertaking. This is a tough nut to crack, and they do have a great cast to do it. It's led by Saoirse Ronan, who we love. Always, and yes. And then you've got Annette Benning, and you've got uh, Corey Stoll, and Mayor Winningham, and Elizabeth Moss, and Brian Dennehy. So, yeah, the cast is there, and, and the material is there. It's just, it is tough material. I mean, this is probably Chekhov's most well-known play. I would think so, yes. Yeah, but produced just before uh, the late 1890s, I think is when it came out. Uh, but what's interesting about it, the, the themes that it explores are, they're incredibly timely still. Basically, it's unrequited love. Sure. You know, it, it, it calls to mind the, the, the great words of Jay Giles, you know, <laughs> you love her, but she loves him and he loves somebody else. You just can't win. That's what's happening here. But also the trick about it is that it's not all that's happening here. There's comedy and there's tragedy, which... Happens in life. Life is going to have both. So you can have both in a movie. But boy, this play in particular is tough to balance them out in the right way. So early on, the barbs, you're thinking like, okay, is is, is he trying for like a love and friendship right, right, from right. a couple of years ago that did that so well? But no, they seem a little almost like this isn't a comedy. We're just saying this line. And then as it goes through the, through the events and you get to the tragic ending, mm-hmm. then it's a little too melodramatic, and it's just, it's its a fa- really a, a, 
a fine line to walk. So I give them credit for taking this on because, yeah, that's tough, tough material to find uh, to find the, the the correct kind tone, of tone, right? Exactly. To get it, but you know, the cast is there. They're they're very good. Everybody's good. And the other problem with with balance is some of the staging, some of the set, the 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 shots, the scenes are set up more stage like. A play, right? When others are given more room, you know, and and some of the uh, surroundings are lush and lavish, and with this estate and the lake and the gardens and everything like that. So sometimes, sometimes it all it almost felt like they just lifted everything right off a stage play they saw. And other times they're trying to work it into a film feature adaptation, a, a feature adaptation. So do something more cinematic with yeah. that. Uh, it's a little you know, and confusing. There, you, you can go back and forth. I mean, I remember one of the criticisms of Fences, Denzel Washington by Old Davis, a couple years ago, is that it seemed too. Um, physically, geographically true to the to the stage play that it was very penned in. On the other hand, if you think about the themes of that play of of being trapped, it made perfect sense that I, that they kept it in that way. But th- that's not exactly. really the case here. This really would have benefited from some some lovely outdoors and some you know a, a little bit like you say a little bit more room to breathe. Yeah, it has some of that, but you have to like like Denzel Washington. That's a very good example you brought up. He made the choice and he went with it. This is how we're going to produce this. Yep. This one here doesn't do that. It doesn't take a stand about what kind of movie it wants to make right. out of this material. And it just seems to get so meandering about it that it never makes it resonant. You don't, don't really feel the the effects of what, I think, Chekhov, his, his original intent of the play was. There's not just text. There's subtext. Right. And, you, and it's tough to get both. And like I said, you know, props for trying, but it just is kind of a swing and a miss here on The Seagull. And with that, it's time to go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. And the lobby is where we find this week's batch of new releases on home video. And it's led by a movie that I really enjoyed called Love, Simon. Now, it's a it's a young adult kind of dramedy, and it's got a lot of recognizable cliches. You've got narration, you've got idealized characters, that dreaded essay read at the uh. end, you know. But why does it come out such a winner? Well, there's a lot of things. There's heart, there's smarts, there's humor, there's good performances, and... In a way that we talked a little bit about um, Feral. The, the one part of Feral, it gets really a couple of points for just existing because it really centers the entire romance around a game, a gay yeah. young boy or young adult, I right. should say. Who's who's kicking around how and when and exactly what way to come out. Right. And he then kinds mm-hmm. has it has his problem hijacked a little bit because someone in his high school comes out anonymously online right. someone else so then all oh, everybody in the high school is trying to figure out who the quote secret gay kid is and then he simon starts a um, anonymous pen pal relationship with this other kid so they are kind of bouncing their own insecurities off each other while the entire school is trying to figure out who it is so yeah you've got these like like i said idealized characters he's got perfect friends he's got perfect mom and dad you know all mm-hmm. that we, we've seen that but still it's able to communicate some some things that are that are nice to see in a movie like this that probably makes some audience members feel a little less alone right and it does it with some nice humor and uh, and, and a nice heart about it so I, I I enjoyed love Simon also out this week the new version of Tomb Raider with Alicia Vikander which is uh, interesting to have an Oscar winner playing uh, Lara Croft but again you know it used to be Angelina Jolie, who was nominated for several times for Oscar, so I guess well, it's... she won one. For girl there you interrupted, go. Yeah. That's right. You're mm-hmm. right. So mm-hmm. it's interesting uh, because their acting isn't really necessary in uh, in this particular franchise. But 
It is nice to see a kick-ass woman in a lead role, and uh, Vicander does a nice job with it. And the film doesn't sexualize the character nearly as much as the previous efforts did, which is a nice change of pace. <laughs> It'd be hard to do it more. It would I'll be. be honestly. It would be. At least the first one. Yeah. The problem, really, uh, I mean, the story is pretty so-so. Uh, the, you know, the action is not nearly as good as it ought to be. And also, you know, uh, every character of color winds up being completely disposable. And that is problematic and pretty obvious in this movie. So uh, even though it gets some points for kind of taking back the image of Laura Croft, I mean, it loses just as many for a number of other things. And one that we loved is out on home video this week. It was Oscar nominated this past year for foreign language film. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It's heart aching, but it's still so worth seeing. It's a movie called Loveless. It's a, it's a Russian film, and it's and it's focused on a, a bickering couple who cannot wait to be divorced. But each one of them, in a very selfish, uh, self-indulgent way, they have already paved out this new life for themselves, and neither one of them wants to take their 12-year-old boy. And the parts where, the early part of the film where the 12-year-old boy is, it, it, it will oh, just tear your just heart break to your pieces. Heart. But then what happens to the couple is, while they're not looking, and when they're so consumed with their own lives, their boy goes missing. Yeah. And then they spend the rest of the movie having to team up, I guess you'd say, and try to find him. So it is a a real comment by a Russian filmmaker, I think, on Russian society yes. and a segment of the population who are extremely self-absorbed. And, and, you know, and also I think that that well, the only time the film doesn't work super well is when the metaphor gets a little bit heavy-handed. But, yep. boy, the performances in the writing are more than enough to make up for it. It is beautiful. It will break your heart, but you should give it a shot. Yeah, it does get a little heavy, especially compared to... Uh, his uh, other Oscar nominee that he had a few years ago called Leviathan. Oh God, I love Leviathan. But this one, it will, it will break your heart. And if you are, if you are, can handle that and uh, know you're gonna, you're gonna go through those types of emotions, it is really worth seeing. A movie called Loveless. And one more out on home video this week, the sequel. There's another long-awaited sequel. Yeah. It took a while. A sequel to The Strangers called Pray at Night. Now The Strangers, the original movie uh, years ago with uh, Liv Tyler, mm-hmm. we really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Scary creepy had those masks kids come to the door and we we still say to this camera home there's camera home <laughs> i mean that's just scary and this one kind of reverts back to more of 80s slasher tropes yeah it's an interesting thing because the original really really embraced a lot of the themes and and visuals of the 1970s uh american horror films and the the sequel is all about the 80s and it doesn't work as well uh it's got a good cast and what they do is it's the exact same group of kids with masks it's just that they've moved on to this trailer park that's kind of off season around a lake uh, where, you know, people spend their summers and this family is staying there just for the weekend because they're driving their daughter back to school. And uh, and they don't know why no one's home, but it's quiet and they're just going to camp. And then what they don't realize, of course, is that this this these three masked teens have already killed everybody who is still in the campground. And now they're looking at, at this family. Yeah, and this one ends up Leaning a little too hard on cliches, while the first film was was very eager to kind of subvert subvert some of those own yes. cliches. This one leans on them. Not that it's bad, especially it isn't. if you're a horror movie fan. It's not bad. Especially if you are, and there are a lot of people who are really big fans of the 80s. I mean, there are some very, some straight homages to to uh, several yeah. films from the 80s, so, yeah, which you, makes it kind of fun. And a lot of times it's visually very, very interesting. It's just not nearly as good a film as the original. Next week, another week with a big release, the new Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. And we got 
doubly excited about this one because we just realized who the director is. J.A. Bayona, who is one of our favorites. And if you don't know his work, you should check it out. Good stuff. So we have renewed interest and renewed expectations for the new Jurassic Park. So we'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about any of the movies this week. Did you think Tag was funny? Or do you think The Incredibles was better than Hope Thought? Well, let us know. <laughs> Easiest way to do that is uh, on our Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. On Facebook and Instagram, we're Mad Wolf Columbus. And uh, you can find the main website. Once again, that's MadWolf.com, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. And you can find all our written reviews from uh, both of us and also our Mad Wolf pack, including Rachel Willis, who we talked about earlier with the review of A Kid Like Jake. And you can also find... Speaking of horror movies, like we just were, our uh, horror-centric podcast, our other podcast, called Fright Club. We'd love to have you check that out as well. So lots going on. Get in touch with you if you can. And until next week, the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. She's Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.